This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 80, Marriage. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I'm your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in today. Marriage is one of my favorite topics and one that is in dire need of attention in our world. Today we will be discussing various applications of the one flesh principle. We will revisit the J.D. Tant biography and discuss the pros and cons of his philosophy of courtship. We will deal with perhaps the most selfish argument anyone has ever made to excuse sin, and we'll marry off our daughters in an effort to become the greatest family in Renaissance Italy. Let's start with what I've been preaching. One flesh. What an amazing concept that is. The idea of coming together as husband and wife and becoming something new, something that is the same and yet fundamentally different, a union that did not exist before, something that is greater than the sum of its parts. I don't doubt for a second that when I was growing up, I had not fully appreciated the concept of one flesh. I suspect probably when I got married, I did not fully appreciate it. I'm starting to appreciate it now, though. The idea of being one flesh is a profound truth and one that speaks to the very heart of our identity as human beings and especially our relationship with God and our connection with one another as we jointly pursue the things of God. And I fear that the idea of one flesh has been completely lost in the modern day. The idea of being something greater than ourselves is a completely foreign concept. And what I'd like to do is look at this idea of one flesh from a variety of perspectives, including, first of all, the most obvious perspective, the physical one. And I don't want to get overly PG-13 on anybody here with regard to the physical aspects of marriage, but there is a very real sense in which when the two come together in marriage, they become one in a physical sense. And I don't doubt that's at least part of the idea behind the one flesh principle. But there is also a sense in which this coming together and forming a physical union is a metaphorical statement with regard to our dealings with physical things in general. There is a world out there that is hostile to us and we need help. We need assistance. We are not able to handle everything ourselves, no matter how much we may think we are capable of doing so. Maybe one of you is better at opening pickle jars. Maybe one of you is better at working on cars. Maybe one of you is better at paying bills. Whatever it happens to be, whatever you bring to the table in a marriage is going to complement, ideally at least, complement your spouse's contributions. And then everything gets done. In a physical, literal sense, there is a very practical aspect to marriage that should not be overlooked. It's important. And it does not serve any purposes to assume that we're all the same, that we all have the same talents, because that's just not true. Hopefully, you will have a relationship with your spouse that fills in these gaps and allows you to do the things that are necessary to succeed and to thrive in a world that oftentimes seems determined to keep us from thriving. There is no doubt, at least partly, this physical aspect to the one flesh. But there is definitely more than that. It's not just a physical thing. There is an emotional 
quotient to the marriage relationship as well. That sense of loneliness is real. We are social beings, and as much as we may want friends or associates or partners in a general sort of sense, there is a real sense of lacking when we do not have that one special someone to share our life with. And marriage provides that, provides that constant life companion that is going to be there to rejoice with us when we rejoice and weep with us when we weep. Historically, there have been some people, some people in in the world today, who pursue marriage primarily for the physical aspects of it. They see marriage as being something that will accomplish their short-term goals, help them do the things they need to do in the most carnal of senses, there is the sexual urge that that is gratified in marriage. And some people think that is their route to that path. As far as the sex goes, that species is kind of dying, I think, because of the way marriage is being mishandled and ignored in our current society. These days, getting married so you can have sex, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Most people are having sex before they even have a relationship, let alone a marriage. So that may have gone by the wayside, and we can discuss whether that's part of the solution or part of the problem. But nevertheless, there is certainly a sense in which people get married so that they can have something carnal, so they can have something physical. And there are other people who are drawn to marriage out of this sense of loneliness, out of this sense of of isolation. I don't want to be by myself. I want to have somebody with me all the time, and so therefore I'll need to find somebody. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. There are certain urges, certain needs that God places us in us emotionally, psychologically, that are best fulfilled in marriage. But if that's all that marriage ever is, if that's all the one flesh that we ever see, we are going to come up short because the physical needs and the emotional needs that we have may be met in the short term and they may not be met in the long term. And if we are constantly judging our marriage based on how we are doing in such things, there are going to be times when we're going to find ourselves lacking. We're going to come up short in our marriage. And the assumption is that marriage is broken, that at least this marriage is broken, and we need to try it again with someone else. When we add a spiritual element to marriage, and we see it not just as physical satisfaction, and not just as emotional satisfaction, but see it as a spiritual connection, that you have two people who are trying to serve God, they are trying to get to heaven, and they see this marriage as one of many approaches to get there along with prayer and worship and obedience and Bible study and all these other things that God requires us to do. These things are drawing us toward him and toward a proper relationship with him. And along the way, we find allies in this fight. We find people who will work with us and help us along the way. And who better to do that than a life mate? Who better to do that than a husband or a wife? When we see this marriage as being a spiritual union, one that is part of the bigger picture. If everything about our life is about getting to heaven, then our marriage is about getting to heaven too. When we see it that way, we come into marriage as seeking heaven, seeking God's things, and both parties are equally committed to this. Then the desire to depart from the marriage, the desire to fail the marriage because of physical shortcomings or because of emotional shortcomings, those get undercut tremendously. Because ultimately, that's not what we came to marriage in the first place. We came so that we could serve God more effectively. And if we chose someone who is genuinely on the same path as we are, then our chances for spiritual success are tremendous, and our chances for marriage success, almost accidentally, 
get astronomically better. Because after all, we are trying to make this work. We are determined, in fact, to make this work. My wife and I did not sit down during our engagement and discuss circumstances under which we might get a divorce. It just did not come up. It didn't, and it's not because we were blind to the possibilities. It's because we were determined not to allow it to be a possibility. And because of that, because we are committed to God's things, we're able to pursue God's things and accomplish them in our marriage. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. So back to J.D. Tant and J.D. Tant, Texas preacher, the book that we referenced last week. Uh, Tant had an interesting approach to marriage, one that, well, in modern day, let's just say would be controversial. Uh, Mr. Tant was a young man, and he knew that if he was going to be a preacher, he was going to need a good woman by his side. Well, good for him so far. And so he set out to find such a woman, and his approach basically was to a to go to a place where single godly women were going to be and make a general assessment of the situation and narrow it down to some finalists. And when he had finally found someone who suited the bill most perfectly, he approached that woman and said, I'm looking for a godly woman to marry and you appear to be the right one. So what do you say? It might have been a little bit more complicated than that, but not much more complicated than that, according to his son. And he did it twice. The first time, his, his wife died tragically and because of complications of childbirth. And, and the second time, his would-be wife was considerably resistant to his advances, which confused him greatly and, and perturbed him to no end. But eventually, she agreed to marry him, and they stayed married for the rest of his life. So it's tough to argue with success. The marriage approach that Brother Tant took worked as far as finding a successful marriage. I'm not sure that I'm recommending that approach to young men out there. I suspect that if you tried that, you would meet with a lot of, of laughter, a lot of ridicule, and a whole lot of rejection. Because the world is different now than it was back then. That's not necessarily a good thing or bad thing, but it is certainly different. There's no point in pretending otherwise. We're going to be dealing with this a little bit more later on in the podcast. But there's certainly something to be said for the idea of approaching marriage from a spiritual perspective. Seeing marriage as something that should be accomplished according to the larger life plan that is lived according to God's will. And Brother Tant is an excellent example of this, and maybe we ought to fine-tune the approach a little bit. I think that might be a good plan. But generally speaking, the priorities that Brother Tant shows in his approach to marriage are good examples for us. First of all, seeking a godly mate where a godly mate may be found. That's rather obvious. If you want to marry a good Christian woman, you go to a place where good Christian women are likely to be. Now, that's a little bit more complicated than you might think because finding a woman to marry is, if that's all you want, it's relatively easy and men tend to be lazy about such things. It would be simpler if we could just go find somebody and then just hope that she turns out to be a good person and a good wife and a good Christian. That's probably not a very reliable approach. Likewise, it's also possible to go fish in the same stream that everyone else is fishing in 
and find the one who suits best with regard to carnal things, the prettiest girl, the richest girl, whatever, and court her and marry her, and then again, cross our fingers and hope that it's going to work out well, hope that she turns out to be a godly woman. Well, I have no issues necessarily with those values in their place, but let's not kid ourselves about this. If we are going to prioritize spiritual things in our own life, and the lives of the family that hopefully God is going to give us in the future. The best time to start that approach is, is at the very beginning. Go to where a godly woman is going to be. And for the women, as far as that goes, put yourself in a position where godly men are going to find you. Now, traditionally, that has meant going to gospel meetings and things like that. That's essentially what Brother Tant did. It's a little more complicated than that. But essentially, he went to where Christians were going to be gathering, and presumably young female Christians were going to be gathering. There's probably an unspoken code in these kind of meetings that people of the opposite sex are going to be looking for someone to perhaps pursue a relationship with. That kind of thing happens a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing far superior to fishing in the same stream that everybody else is fishing in. And as simple as this is, I think this point is oftentimes missed by young people who think they can have their cake and eat it too. If you want to catch a godly woman or a godly man, as the case may be, you fish in the stream where those godly people are going to be found. Secondly, seek to give an accurate impression rather than a favorable one. I don't doubt that Brother Tant combed his hair and wore clean clothes and such when he approached a woman and asked her about marriage. But it's clear that was not the priority. The priority was finding a godly woman and presenting himself as a godly man. If you want to draw the attention of someone who values spiritual things, that's what you need to lead with. And there's no point in trying to make out like something is not true. I fear that in courtship, we have this compulsion to put our best foot forward to the point of hiding who we actually are. Maybe it would be better if we were honest with one another, painfully honest even. Brother Tant told these women right up front, the lifestyle that I'm calling you to is very, very difficult, very challenging, not going to be a lot of money. This is who I am and the wife that I am going to have, whoever she happens to be, is going to be there with me. So don't sell anybody a pig in a poke. Help them realize who you actually are. And thirdly, agree, and this is most important, of course, that God's work has to come first in everything. If you're going to be the wife of a preacher, Tant said, then you have to understand what that means. I'm going to be gone. Under those circumstances back then, that meant him being on the road 40-plus weeks out of the year. It was going to be difficult for his wife, and she needed to know that. And not only did she need to know that, she needed to appreciate that and value that in her husband because this was the priority in his life and it needed to be the priority in her life. And if she wasn't up for that, no hard feelings, but this is not going to be a good match. If you seek the Lord first, you want to marry someone who seeks the Lord first, including and particularly above your own personal values. I know that it's gratifying in a selfish kind of way to think that my wife is going to put me first in everything. But being someone who is pursuing God first, I really want her to pursue God first herself for her own sake and also for my sake. Because ultimately, that's the most important thing. That's the way I want our children to be reared. That's the way I want decisions to be made in our house. If we come out with this basic understanding of what marriage is going to be, who we are in that marriage, 
then we've got a decent chance for success. Now, I would advise that you approach things somewhat differently than Brother Tan did, but however you do it, make sure that you pursue marriage in a God-centered way. Have a God-centered marriage, and then honor God in your marriage. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. I will probably break down and start crying right here on camera if I try to discuss in full the occasions in which I have been told, in so many words, I just think God would want me to be happy. Usually that's in a marriage context. Usually that is someone who has already decided that their marriage is not working, they're going to move on, they're going to do something else. And I want to be clear on this. I haven't mentioned this before, but I'll mention this now. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says there that putting your spouse away and marrying another is fornication, unless it is for the cause of adultery. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but that's the rule that Jesus laid out for us. And according to what Jesus says, quoting from Genesis 2, verse 24, such has always been the case. And so when we are called to Jesus, we are called to accept his rules in everything. And that includes marriage. The problem with marriage is people feel very strongly about it. They feel very emotional about it. And ultimately, in the case of many people at least, they care more about success in marriage as they may define success than they do about serving God. And when we are living in a culture that is obsessed with short-term happiness, that is obsessed with making yourself as happy as you possibly can be right now. We as Christians ought to know better than this because we are not earthly beings. We are heavenly beings. We realize that. Our friends in the world are heavenly beings too. They just don't realize it. We realize it. We know that we're heading for heaven. And we know that short-term happiness in this life is oftentimes a distraction. It's oftentimes a hindrance to us. And yet we see over and over again this same basic call going out. I really think God wants me to be happy. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. Does God really want us to be happy? The answer is really pretty consistent. And I challenge you in the first place to make a positive case for this. You say that God wants me to be happy. Okay, great. Find a passage that says so. Find a passage that says God is pleased with your situation in life because you are happy in that situation. Where is the Bible for that? And while you're looking for that, let me point out some situations where it becomes obvious that your happiness is contrary to God's will, not in harmony with God's will, and certainly not at the heart of God's will, that is actually contrary to God's will. What about other people? That's maybe the most obvious thing. God wants me to be happy. Well, does he want your husband or your wife to be happy? Does he want your children to be happy? How about all these mutual friends are going to have to choose between you and your spouse? How about their happiness? Does that matter at all? That can be a pretty selfish thing when you start thinking about it. My wife says she's done with me and she's leaving. And I don't want her to leave. She says, well, God wants me to be happy. I said, well, God wants me to be happy too. And I'm happy in my marriage. What well, makes your happiness more important than my marriage, my happiness? It's a selfish thing, isn't it? And children, why a child ever wanted his parents to be divorced? You're deliberately making a lot of people miserable. That is an absolutely selfish and ungodly attitude. 
We are told over and over again to put other people's happiness ahead of our own. If we can't put our spouse's happiness ahead of our own, if we can't put our children's happiness ahead of our own, then how can we possibly claim to be loving our neighbor as ourselves? We're not even loving our family as ourselves. So happiness at the expense of other people's happiness? Absolutely not. How about even deeper than that? Is our happiness more important than our relationship with Jesus? Is it okay for us to be happy if it's going to cost us our soul? And realize that's the decision that we're making. Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I just don't love my spouse anymore. I don't love my husband. I don't love my wife. And therefore, I have to get divorced. Well, do you love Jesus? Let's leave the matter of whether you do or do not or should or should not love your spouse. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus told you to do. Now, Jesus comes first in my life. Okay, well, what does Jesus tell you to do then? Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 6, what God has joined together, do not let man separate, he says. It's very straightforward. What if I really want to separate? What if I really want to divorce? Is that relevant? Do you love Jesus or do you not love Jesus? If you truly want to serve Jesus, you're going to find a way to do what he told you to do. You're not going to search and dig around to find some kind of loophole so that you can do what you have already decided in your mind that you're going to do. Ultimately, this is a salvation issue. That's what the text says. Do you want to be saved? Open your mind to the biblical reality that God is more concerned about getting you saved than making you happy. He says so in so many words. Any number of places, I'll refer you to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse number 3 and following. For this is God's will. This is God's will. Your happiness. No, that's not what he says. This is God's will, your sanctification. Being a saint, being set apart from the sinful world. And he says specifically in this context, what kind of sanctification? And it's sexual. It's about your marriage. It's about your husband and your, or your wife. Your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is not about making a mistake that's going to put you in bad favor with me or with the Apostle Paul. That's not the point at all. God has called you to holiness. God has called you to sanctification. You can either respond to that call or not. I'm not suggesting it's always going to be easy. I'm not suggesting the other party isn't partly to blame for your dissatisfaction in your marriage. But let's disabuse ourselves of this notion somehow that we are justified in divorcing simply because we really, really want to. That is not what the Bible teaches. If you want to reject what the Bible says, that's your business, and you'll stand in judgment for that. But if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to love the Lord, if you claim to respect what the Bible says about your life and how you're supposed to lead your life, there is absolutely no question about where he stands with regard to your happiness versus your sanctification. He wants you saved. And if it's at the expense of your happiness, then your happiness is going to have to yield. Being saved is far more important. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. Signori is uh, an interesting game. It is a 
depiction of life in the nobility of Renaissance Italy. Basically, you are the head of a family. And like all rich families, you are striving for power. And striving for power means, among other things, having a lot of kids. And you have boys, and you send them out into the world to achieve things, either in the military or in the uh, in clerical work, in the priesthood, or in rising up in stature in royal circles. The higher you achieve, the more important your boys are, and therefore the more important your family is. That's what boys were in these cultures. It was a, a good thing to have sons. There's going to be a lot of things in this discussion that are going to be somewhat offensive to some of the women out there, and maybe some of the men too, and I apologize ahead of time. This is not intended to be, uh, hey, we need to live like 16th century Italians did. That's not the point here at all. We're just describing how the game works, okay? Stick with me. So you have boys half the time, and the other half of the time, you have girls. Well, what are you going to do with the girls? Because the girls can't achieve in these other areas. Well, you marry the girls off. And you achieve some level of rank advancement by marrying your daughters off to important people. That seems just horribly, horribly outdated, and it is. But basically what it is, is putting yourself in position where you can do the best you can for your family under these circumstances. And frankly, I'm happy that most of these things have changed. I'm happy that our marriage situation doesn't work that way. And me having two girls and no boys has nothing to do with that, by the way. But there is some aspects to this ancient view of marriage that I think bear some, some consideration as we think about our relationship with God and how marriage fits in or does not fit in with our current circumstances. There are obviously some aspects of marriage that change from culture to culture, even within a particular period of time. And certainly over time, this is the case. Marriage, even in America, has changed radically over the last three or 400 years. And it's even changed to a large degree in my lifetime. There is a very different view of marriage, very different practice of marriage in a lot of ways, in a lot of circumstances. That may or may not be a good thing depending on your personal values. That may or may not be a spiritual thing, a biblical thing, depending on what particular topic we're talking about. Marriage culture changes with human culture. That is going to happen. But we as Christians, hopefully, are in a position where we realize that God's rules don't change with culture. It does not become okay to do what the Bible says is sin simply because the people in our culture are doing those things. When you think about it, that makes no sense at all. The whole point of Jesus Christ being preached in the world, in a sinful world, in an ungodly world, a pagan world, is to get them to reject their culture, to reject at least aspects of their culture that were ungodly, that were defiling, that did not glorify God. He calls us to a greater thing, including and particularly when the thing that we are doing is dear to us, when it is native to our culture, when it's the most natural thing in the world, when everyone around us is doing that. Those are specifically the situations where Jesus calls us to leave everything behind and follow after him. And the question keeps coming back to us in marriage and in every other situation. How much do we want to serve God? How much do we want to please God? 
Yes, cultures do change. And in fact, the, the Bible deals with that. The New Testament deals with that as Jewish Christians find themselves in Gentile cultures and, and how much of their heritage do they need to hold on to and how much must they hold on to and when should they sacrifice their culture uh, going into these other situations. That's a, a very legitimate conversation. And maybe we'll have that another time. But here we're focusing on God's rules and how they are rooted in him and in his wisdom and not in culture. There are certainly cultural aspects to our walk with Christ. We live with Christ as Americans, for instance, or as citizens of the 21st century, or whatever it happens to be. Nothing we can do about that. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just who we are and where we are. But when being modern or being an American or being a Texan or being whatever requires us to put aside God's will for our lives that is not rooted in culture, that's rooted in his mind, his will, then we have to be prepared to accept God first, last, and always. Baptism is a good example of this. Baptism is not rooted in culture. Baptism is rooted in God. John the Baptist wasn't baptizing people because that's what godly people did in his day. He was baptizing people because God told them to do it. And so it's inappropriate for us in the 21st century to look at that and say, well, that was just a, a cultural thing. That's what they did in reference to sin and cleansing and such things. Uh, that worked for John the Baptist. That worked for Jesus. That worked for the apostles. But we're beyond that. We've moved past that. No, you can't do that because that truth is not rooted in culture. That truth is rooted in the mind of God. Now, there are various aspects, like the holy kiss, for instance, that are rooted in culture. The reason Paul tells the churches to greet one another with a holy kiss in Romans 16, verse 16, is because that's how people in that society greeted one another. It was a, a friendly kind of thing. It was a cordial, it was a polite thing. It was respectful. It was not sexual at all, of course. That was the culture of the day, and you use that culture to accomplish God's will. God's will is kindness, brotherly love, respect for human beings. Can we express those godly values in a way that is appropriate for our culture? Yes, we can. Now, there are various reasons why I'm not especially inclined, especially in COVID-19 America, to go up to a brother or sister in Christ and kiss them on the cheek and say Romans 16, 16. I'm not inclined to do that. I would do it if God required me to do it. But as it is, that is a cultural expression. And I have cultural expressions that I can use that are just as effective, just as meaningful, just as spiritual as the one that they used in some aspects of the first century church. But the basic moral underpinnings of all of it, that has to remain constant. So when we're looking at marriage in the 21st century, as opposed to the marriage in the first century, or even marriages before that, what we need to do is make sure that we focus on spiritual things, make sure that God's values reign in us. I'll refer you to Psalm 127. Let's read this together. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stay alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the ones he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. There are cultural aspects of marriage that are described clearly. But the main point is, we honor God in our marriages. We honor God in our family. When we draw closer to God, God blesses us, and we use those blessings to turn even more attention, even more glory toward our Heavenly Father. 
How they did that in the first century, how they did that in the 16th century, how we do that in the 21st century, that may vary a little bit. But no matter what we do, we do it in a way that honors and pleases God. So have a marriage that glorifies God, that builds God up, that magnifies Him in the eyes and the hearts of those who are around you. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please consider subscribing to the audio and or video versions, and better yet, sharing them through word of mouth or on social media. Feel free to reach out to me through my website, www.halhammonds.com, or through Facebook and Instagram. Criticisms, corrections, and encouragement are always welcome. Until next time, be strong in the Lord, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.